Um, so I've been smoking marijuana um, since I was probably like 15, sophomore year of high school. And since then, it's pretty much been an everyday thing. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. I'm your host, Benjamin Rangel, and today on April 20th, we have a somewhat atypical, unique episode for you all. We have decided to take a look at the state of cannabis here in Wisconsin. According to a Time Magazine article that I may have just Googled, there are over a thousand words used to describe marijuana. No doubt a demonstration of our society's fascination with the aesthetically innocuous plant. The debate around the legal status in this country goes back centuries, and the debate here in Wisconsin is just as relevant today as bipartisan support, popular opinion, and geographic peer pressure are all seemingly creating the ideal environment for some policy change. If you are like me, you probably are asking, why exactly do people associate April 20th with using cannabis? Well, it looks like Madeline Holcomb with CNN Health was curious too, or at least that was her assignment for this week. Uh, And according to her research and Chris Conrad, curator of the Oaksterdam Cannabis Museum in Oakland, California, 420 started as a secret code among high schoolers in the early 1970s. A group of friends at San Rafael San Rafael High School in Marin County, California, who called themselves the Waldos, would often meet at 4.20 p.m. to get high. For them, it was an ideal time. They were out of school, but their parents still weren't home, giving them a window of unsupervised freedom. They met at that time every day near a statue of Louis Pasteur, the scientist who pioneered pasteurization. The 420 time became a code for them to use in front of their unsuspecting parents, and 420 gradually spread from there, possibly via Grateful Dead followers across California and beyond. It's even the number of a California Senate bill that established the state's medical marijuana program. What was shorthand for a group of friends can now be seen on t-shirts and throughout pop culture. And of course, on the calendar every April. And again, that was Madeline Holcomb with CNN Health uh, on how 420 became Weed Day. So in honor of the Waldos, let's learn more about the state of cannabis here in Wisconsin. Producer Casey O'Hollick and I interviewed three stakeholders. Of course, it was done remotely. Uh, First, you'll hear from a guest who is a self-described weed smoker and dealer. We will call him Dan Kay. And his voice was altered to protect his identity. After all, it is still illegal here in Wisconsin to use marijuana. Then we'll hear from Eric Marsh with the Southeastern Chapter of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And lastly, we'll hear from State Representative Melissa Sargent, who has authored four bills in the Wisconsin legislature to legalize cannabis here in our state. If you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash bridgescity or visit our website, bridgescitypodcast.com. Lastly, this episode does include swearing and jug references, so be advised. All right. Here's Dan K. Um, so I've been smoking marijuana um, since I was probably like 15, sophomore year of high school. And since then, it's pretty much been an everyday thing um, with like maybe a week break in there one time. Um, so and I'm 30 now, so that's like... 15 16 years uh i guess to for the most part it's a positive impact negative impacts i guess would be like sometimes the smell issue of course with uh you know living in a duplex sometimes like when i'm like actually using um memory of course plays a plays a role um with the effect there negative effect yeah and so dan we're talking on this episode about 
the state of marijuana in in Wisconsin uh, from a legal perspective. Uh, obviously, in the state of Wisconsin, it is currently illegal. So I think it would be interesting, too, for listeners to know a little bit more about the process. Uh, you don't have to give specific details or anything, but knowing that it's illegal and we technically can't go to our local dispensary uh, like you can in places like Colorado, Washington, so on and so forth. Um, can you give a little bit information about like the process of obtaining uh, uh, weed sure. if you feel comfortable? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, nowadays, I mean, you can just drive over the border um, and pick some up in a store there. You're talking Illinois, right? Yes. Um, or the Michigan border. I mean, we're soon to be surrounded by legal recreational pot. Um, but aside from that, um, you know, some people, um, sometimes maybe you'll just know somebody who has some and you'll inquire if they could help you out. Um, everybody knows a guy sort of thing. Um, it's coming from legal States. Um, lately I've been getting stuff from, from Michigan. That's technically black market, even in Michigan. Um, I don't know the whole story with that, but yeah, that is interesting. I think the nature of our like federalist system is that you have states literally like 45 an hour away, 45 minutes an hour away south of us where it's legal. Uh, and then it would be illegal technically for you to, uh, you know, purchase and bring it back to the state of Wisconsin and use it here which seems sort of backwards from like a common sense perspective. Would you describe the act of obtaining weed for you as difficult? Um, no, not difficult at all. Would you say it is more difficult than, um, you know, I'm thinking of other legalized uh, recreational drugs like alcohol. Uh, is it more or less dif difficult than getting a, um, you know, a 30 rack or something of, of beer, or a bottle of alcohol. Um, significantly less difficult, actually, because um, I can get it delivered to my house and then nobody's checking any documentation. So if for liquor, I have to go to a store. Um, I'm sure there's delivery services, but for the most part, I would be taking a little walk or a drive um, and then I'd have to present identification. And I guess that's more, that's me being somebody who already like knows people. I suppose if I was like moving into a new area um, where I didn't know anyone, it would be significantly more difficult. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, I, I liked how you, you brought up the fact that there's no identification that's checked or anything. You, you are able to obtain uh, this uh, ostensibly illegal drug uh, easier than you would obtaining uh, some liquor and that brings that brings up this this idea or this phrase that representative uh, sergeant who you may hear you may have already heard if you're listening to this or you will hear from in a bit on the podcast um, she says often that the fact that marijuana is illegal is more dangerous than it would be if it was legal the fact that it's illegal makes that makes it more dangerous. Do you agree with that sentiment? Um, yes, but maybe not exactly what they're trying to say. Like, I would say like the biggest issue with it, um, and this was like my parents' issue with it after after they got more used to it. Um, just the fact that it is illegal and that it can get the legality standpoint it can get me in a lot more trouble than just using or being a regular user. And then like so many people get their lives ruined because they like get caught in possession or using in more or less a responsible manner. Um, but just cause it's illegal, it just really screws them over. And so say the state of Wisconsin, uh, miraculously comes together in a bipartisan fashion, which seems more and more unlikely nowadays, but let's just say that the Republicans and Democrats, um, find common ground here and it is legalized recreationally, uh, here in the state of Wisconsin. Do you think that the barriers to enter like the marijuana selling business, I suppose, would be higher or lower if it was uh, legal here in the state of Wisconsin? Would it be more difficult to start a business if it was legal? Um, to just get started, um, significant, from what I'm 
from what I understand about other states, um, the barriers are a lot greater. Um, I think I've heard like $20,000 or $30,000 for licenses to, to grow or sell. So that's just getting you into the game. I think that's just like one year license too. One thing that I've heard uh, frequently was that, you know, if you wanted to sell weed now, it's uh, rather low barriers to entry, right? You need to find obviously a supplier, uh, but past that, you don't need a permit. Rather, when it is legal, you do need to either purchase a permit or go through the hoops of starting a small business. So I don't know you. I actually don't even know your real name, uh, but we're calling you Dan here. I should mention you preferred Dan K, which it took Casey a little bit to to realize that that's actually Dank. Um, She's calling you out. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, sure <laughs> yep. Um, love the name, but you seem like a pretty good guy from this last half hour that I've talked to you. It, but there are some stigmas and stereotypes around drug dealers or pot smokers in general. What do you think are some stereotypes or um, stigmas that are unfair? Um, all of the stereotypes and stigmas um, I'm, hmm, are unfair. Share some examples. Yeah, so you you mentioned um, one in the beginning that sometimes while you're using, yet your your memory seems a little bit uh, could be a little bit weaker than uh, when you're not using. Uh, I think the the stereotype there is that uh, pot pot smokers are uh, forgetful or have terrible memory just broadly, like all the time because they smoke weed. Do you think that's fair? Um, no, that's not fair. So. Yeah. When I was at the beginning, I was still warming up. Just wanted to put on, go on the record there. I'll be warming up throughout the whole thing, maybe actually. Um, but, um, pot, pot users are as diverse as people come. Um, there's doctors, medical doctors that use it, surgeons, um, people raising their kids, seniors. So like, yeah, no, no stereotype really like fits, um, pot smokers in general except that they all smoke pot so you're sort of getting at the demographic stereotypes about pot smokers being sort of long-haired maybe hippies so um another question that you're sort of already talking about is like who are the customers so you mentioned uh, medical doctors older people who comes to you uh that might surprise you and i I guess I, i should preface this question by would you consider yourself a uh, distributor or a weed dealer. I don't know what the proper terminology is, but yes, sure. Okay. So who comes to you that might surprise you? Um, people who are battling cancer, um, who are a big fan of like edibles or whatever, like relative of mine's mother, um, kind of like dipped her toes in like CBD and hemp. And like maybe for like a week or something was feeling some effects. Um, and then like, well, maybe longer than a week, but then at some point they were like, Oh, this isn't really doing it. And they're like, Oh, what if we try this? And then they've been enjoying that. And that story is pretty common. Um, from my experiences, one of my favorites is just parents who are responsible parents that enjoy just for recreational purposes. Um, popular culture often dramatizes, uh, marijuana use. We can think of movies like Pineapple Express, uh, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. These are sort of movies that, comedies that uh, dramatize and hyperbolize the use of marijuana. Are these good representations of marijuana use, in your opinion? <laughs> what do you mean by good? Like, is it good for advocates of marijuana legalization <laughs> that the, that the way marijuana is uh, uh, shown in popular culture can sometimes be dramatized? Or <laughs> for the most part, I uh, I don't think that stoners are good for pot advocacy um, in general. Um, or let me take that back, please. <laughs> um, we definitely don't do it much favors. You are making a distinction between stoners and just like recreational every now and then pot users. Mm, No, like maybe to me when I like say stoners, I like mean there's like a type that I'm picturing in my head. 
and I can't even really put a finger on that exactly what I meant. To go back to your question, um, I think that we do a disservice with those movies, perhaps. Well, it's tricky because they're really, they can be pretty fun. And for the most part, like those movies are for people who are already like in on the gag. They're yeah. not for people who are like trying to like gain knowledge. Like those aren't, <laughs> those aren't educational documentaries. Like, uh, Don't up watch smoke is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, up in smoke is one of my favorites. Um, Cheech and Chong's up in smoke. Yep. Just hilarious. And if like you don't get it, like like if you've never used it or if you have and it like wasn't a great time, um you might be like, wow, this is horrible. Um, but if you're in on the joke, I mean, you the absurdity of it is clear. So my question is around the um, vaping charges where the Wisconsin woman and her sons were charged with running an illegal vaping operation. Um, and the Kenosha County Police Department uncovered 31,000 um, filled cartridges with THC oil. Um, is that two separate things or is that the same there was a mother involved in that yeah that was it was a mom and a son okay okay Um, there was also something in kenosha with two brothers right it's two brothers and their mother oh all right okay gotcha all right (laughs) um but around that time people that i know were smoking weed vapes right and you know, people in hospitals where my friends were working were getting ill. And I felt like I saw a lot of um, just like Milwaukee people kind of pulling away from um, like smoking or using a vape. Um, has that affected your business at all? Did that um, scare you? Do you feel like that was like a dangerous time to be in the marijuana business? Yes, um, it was a a dangerous time or a sticky time. Um, but really it was, Hmm. There was no real, like consumers had their reality shattered there. Right. They thought that when they, they didn't realize that an unregulated product was an unregulated product, like really what that meant to them. Um, black market herb can have undesirable things in it as well. Um, it's best to like know where you're getting things from. How do you test your product and like what makes you feel comfortable selling weed or marijuana products coming out of places like Michigan or coming from somewhere potentially you don't know the origin of? I wish really that I had a, even a better answer to this, but just mainly it's just trying to like vet the people uh, there's definitely a lot of trust there there's not a lot of certainty um getting things tested is scary because for me right i'd have to then like in to some way like claim that i possess this right like take that to a research facility and say hey check this out and then it would probably just get really expensive because i can't imagine that doing that one time is particularly cheap and then it would have to happen all the time but um this is something that i kind of tell people like where my confidence comes into it um there's a lot of like different types of people trying to make money selling contraband um and some of them are like feel-good hippies i mean again like this spans the whole the whole spectrum of people um you have like good people who are like not trying to hurt anybody but maybe trying to like take advantage of a situation and make a couple bucks or potentially even like help people. And then you'll have people who are like, who have, who have no interest in helping other people. They're solely looking out for themselves and they don't care who gets hurt in the process. So like with like those, those like uh, THC vapes, the cartridges, uh, carts as I think they're commonly called, those can be coming from like nefarious people who are willing to just put like other chemicals in there that will like make you feel inebriated that's not even 
THC. These people probably also like to sell meth and heroin. Um, and they, they're, I don't know, more like the type of people that Batman fights. Whereas there's like then the people who like were in the Woodstock documentary who like are now basically like the boomers that we know who like made pot and being a hippie, they like, you know, shaped that culture. Um, and they like, they still have like a kernel of it in them at the very least. Well, let's, let's talk about like what your position in the industry is. Was this something that's your full-time job? Do you do this to supplement your income? Do you have another like a professional career on top of doing this? Um, I do as a matter of fact. Um, but it has, it has been my full-time thing in the past. Um, and now it's just a supplemental thing. And so you said you started smoking um, or consuming marijuana when you were 15. So 15 years later, now you're 30, you're looking back. What really made you want to get into the industry in a more serious way? And then what was that experience? And you talk a lot about like trusting your sources and your suppliers. Mm -hmm. How did that come to be? So I got into it initially, probably in like high school, um, kind of just like a thing to do. Um, it would be fun kind of going around, meeting up with people, um, smoking with different groups of homies from high school. Um, and then in the, mean, in the meantime, making a buck or two. After high school, I moved out onto my own and that it was never really like the plan to like get too deep into it. Um, but it sort of just like happened organically. Not that I think I'm like too deep into it, but I'm pretty established at this point. I'm, st I'm still like small time is what I'm trying to say. So, and then the way that you like get to know people or get contacts is uh, through experience or like recommendations or uh, referrals. And then you don't really like bounce around all that much. You kind of like find some people that you're cool with and you kind of stick with them. What has been the craziest thing that you've done to like purchase weed or uh, related to your marijuana usage? Or have you ever been put in a dangerous situation? Um, dangerous in what way? Whatever way you feel. Is there like a crazy story that you share, um, with friends or like something that just happened that sticks out to you? Like right now it's pretty easy with things just kind of coming to me or like not traveling very much. But in the past I've traveled a lot more to acquire things. So I've done like trips where I've driven to Colorado or California and then like drove home with those things. Um, those are pretty exhilarating trips. Uh, the one time that I did the California cruise, I got pulled over in Nevada. Um, and the, the officer was like pretty certain that I was positive that I was speeding, but like I wasn't, there was another car that sped by and there was this whole thing where like I was for a second, I thought that I was kind of like that the cop like knew what was up sort of, um, and was just like going to deny me due process more or less and just kind of like, just get right to it. Like he knew what was going on and was going to just bust me. Um, but I, but I skid, I skid by on the, no, or the hair of my ass or something there. Just kind of got lucky maybe, or could have got very unlucky. Um, that was a spooky time. Another time I flew out to California to uh, mail some things back for my dude. And I, so I like, met up with like the grower and mailed things back. And that was, that was a fun time too. Say, man, you got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. <laughs> It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> Next, we talked to the executive director of the Southeastern Wisconsin chapter of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. So I'm Eric Marsh. I'm the executive director of the Southeastern Wisconsin Chapter of Normal, which is the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And we're an organization dedicated to ending cannabis prohibition and getting expungements for people who have already been harmed by prohibition and basically doing like restorative justice uh, type things as well for people who have been harmed by, by prohibition and just, you know, undoing the harms as much as we can. My first question is is more so about other successful campaigns throughout the country country to legalize marijuana. So as I mentioned before, the 
interview started, I've spoken, we've spoken with state representatives here in the state of Wisconsin who have had a hard time passing legislation or even getting legislation, uh, having hearings on legislation in the state legislature here in Wisconsin around medicinal use of marijuana or recreational use of marijuana. And I'm wondering, have you worked with or on any campaigns in any other states that have successfully successfully legalized marijuana? Um, I haven't worked on any uh, campaigns in any of the other states. I mean, we're in touch with with some people from some of the other normal chapters, but it's just the, the dynamics are different here in Wisconsin. And I mean, although there's some tips that you know that apply over, um, virtually every state that has legalized cannabis is done through a ballot initiative, which we can't do here in Wisconsin. We can't put something before the voters by collecting enough signatures. And so, you know, so that that's the main way and almost, you know, the more the most straightforward way to do it is out. And then you have Illinois, which passed it through the legislature um, and Vermont as well. Um, but the thing is, like they that was both done through like Democratic legislatures. And although the, the governor of Vermont is Republican, um, it's just it's a different it must just be a different culture because like here in Wisconsin, the Republicans are so vehemently against it. We haven't gotten anyone to sign on, any Republicans to sign on to the full legalization. We have had a few Republicans in support of the medicinal bills. Um, Patrick Teston, the senator from up by Stevens Point in particular, he was a co-sponsor of, of a really good medical bill here. But like the... the the Senate leadership, even though was even though Senator Teston chairs the the Health Committee, they decided um, to give it out to the uh, government. I don't remember the name of the committee off the top of my head, but it's like the Government Oversight Committee. Here is State Senator Teston in an interview with WPR last January. Because as I've heard from from advocates, whether it's veterans, whether it's cancer patients, people with chronic pain. There's certainly an appetite at the, within the public at large for medical cannabis. And I think this is a decision that should be made between a doctor and a patient. And uh, so we released the bill back in September. And is, is what shouldn't be a huge surprise, um, it was immediately dead in the water when the majority leader in the Senate said he, he can't get behind it because he doesn't support, which I respect a lot of my colleagues uh for a number of different reasons on why they have concerns about this. But for me, um, this really is about giving patients choice. What is it about marijuana legalization that the Republican leadership, I suppose, so let's not overgeneralize every Republican, because as you mentioned, there are some who at least support medicinal use of marijuana or cannabis. What is it about the leadership, as far as you can tell, that makes them opposed to legalization? here in the state of Wisconsin. On the recreational side, they think that it's going to lead to more crime. Uh, they think that the public health implications would outweigh the tax revenues. Um, they don't want to be seen as soft on crime. They, they hear from from all the, the police chiefs unions and, and all these people, you know, that those are the people that they listen to. And they just want to continue. They think the drug war is fine and, and they think that it's dangerous to, to legalize it and that, you know, that... Uh, it would lead to the legalization of other drugs, and it's the whole slippery slope thing. And that's kind of tied into why they oppose uh, medicinal as well, is because they think that medicinal is a slippery slope to recreational legalization. They also think the, the thing that they specifically don't like about cannabis, like whole plant cannabis, is that they consider a medicine to be something like very pharmaceuticalized, where it's a very known dosage, where it's a very known, like, this is the exact chemical that's in it. Whereas the cannabis plant contains up to like 130 different cannabinoids and even more terpenes. And so it's in all kinds of varying ratios. And so they don't, there's not that standardization that some of the medical community would like to see for a medicine. I mean, I would counter that by saying that cannabis is safe. It doesn't need that kind of, that kind of rigor that you would need with pharmaceutical drugs. Cannabis has been safely used for millennia. And so while I appreciate the rigorous, you know, controls on pharmaceuticals, I don't think there's that need for it with cannabis. Maybe we can talk a little bit more in depth about specific 
uh, cons that people articulate when it comes to legalization. So you mentioned marijuana and cannabis usage as a slippery slope. I've also heard it called a gateway drug. Why is that a wrong way to think about things? So with cannabis, cannabis and the gateway drug theory, um, basically the gateway drug theory is. Do you hear that? Do you hear how difficult it is for Eric to articulate this argument against legalization? It's because in the list of logical fallacies we learn about in English class or that we Google every time someone personally attacks you on Twitter and you need to be sure you remember what an ad hominem is, slippery slope is literally one of them. And so articulating something based in fallacy can be difficult. Let's see, how's the best way to... So the gateway drug theory is basically assuming that that people, that if you use cannabis, you're more likely to use other drugs. And they point to these surveys saying that, you know, people who used heroin started out with, with marijuana first. Well, you know what they used probably before marijuana? They probably, they probably used alcohol or tobacco or certainly all of them used caffeine. I mean, just because something, basically what all they're pointing out is that marijuana is more prevalent. Marijuana is more easily accessible. Just because someone used marijuana before moving on to something else doesn't mean that marijuana made them move on to it. And in fact, by eliminating marijuana from the black market, you would reduce the possibility that marijuana users would move on to other things. Because when you go to the liquor store, you don't have people trying to sell you hard drugs at the liquor store. I mean, maybe some people outside, but in general, you know, you go to the liquor store and it's, it's a regulated place. People aren't trying to push, push crack or heroin or anything on you. But when I've gone and I've tried to buy weed, I've had people try to offer me all kinds of other drugs. And that's, that's because of prohibition. Prohibition creates a gateway there by, by creating those connections that you need in order to get cannabis. By legalizing it, you take, you take that gateway out. But the vast majority of people who use cannabis never go on to use heroin. They never go on to use more dangerous drugs. And so th- there's just, there's no, you know, there's a correlation. People who use drugs use a lot of different kinds of drugs sometimes, but you know, there's a correlation just like in the, you know, in the summer, more people buy ice cream and more people drown. That doesn't mean that ice cream causes drownings, just like people using cannabis doesn't cause them to use harder drugs. There's no causal correlate, no causal effect there. Can you talk a little bit about the, this, this idea that it's just, it's bad for you. It's a, it's a health concern and that's why it should not be legal because we shouldn't be condoning uh, this negative health, uh, this drug that can have a negative impact on our health. Yeah, a lot of the, the health concerns that opponents claim are, are fairly overblown. I mean, cannabis smoke, smoking anything is going to be somewhat dangerous to the lungs. But the, the, the fact is that there's been large studies. There was a big study out of UCLA that showed that cannabis smokers were no more likely than non-smokers to, to either have COPD or emphysema or get lung cancer. And they think that part of it is because cannabis is known to have um, anti-carcinogenic properties. And so they think that, you know, the, the, the cannabinoids offset the harm of the, the tobacco smoke or the, the cannabis smoke. And that's in contrast to tobacco smoke, which we all know is extremely dangerous. Um, and then there's also claims of, you know, like increased rates of like schizophrenia is something else that people will bring up. It does seem like, you know, there might be a very small potential increase. There, there does seem to be some evidence for it, but it's, it's really interesting. Like um, just a week after I saw an article claiming that, that marijuana use might create, oh, you know, if you use marijuana, you would have maybe a one in 30,000 chance of getting psychosis. And that was used as evidence that this stuff is way too dangerous. Well, then, like a week after that, I saw a study that said that people who go on Adderall have like a one in 600 chance of developing psychosis. And yet that's something that we just give to kids because they can't sit still in class and that's claimed to be some kind of safe drug. And so just there's this disconnect. I mean, everything has a risk. But with cannabis, I mean, especially when it comes to allowing consenting adults to to use it. They should be able to balance their risks and make informed choices. And the harms of prohibition, I think, greatly outweigh the potential risks of having it out there. Uh, Just a quick tangent of a question. Uh, Using cannabis versus marijuana, 
Uh, I noticed when I talked to a representative sergeant, she referred to it exclusively as cannabis. But in my questions as I was writing it, and I think in popular culture, we sort of call it marijuana. Is there a purposeful distinction between using cannabis uh, and uh, versus marijuana? Well, so the history of it is that marijuana, like it has been historically known as cannabis. I mean, cannabis was included back in the pharmacopoeia back in like the, the 1800s as a medicine. And when they were trying to make it illegal, people like Anslinger and Hearst uh, started using the term marijuana to, to create an association with, with Mexicans. They were trying to use racist associations. I'm sure a lot of people know about uh, a lot of the old stigmas about how it makes black people walk on white people's shadows and, you know, makes, makes minorities uppity. And they were, they were trying to use racist stigmas to, to criminalize the plant. And so we're kind of trying to, to undo that by calling it cannabis. Um, I think a more technical distinction is that cannabis refers to the plant as a whole. Like it's, it's kind of sits above hierarchically both marijuana and hemp. So right now we do technically have some forms of legal cannabis by having legal legal hemp, and we want to complete that by adding uh, marijuana, which is the term more used for the high THC varieties of cannabis. On the topic of, of race, uh, the data from other states that have legalized marijuana have shown the economic benefits of its legalization have gone disproportionately to white men. In 2017, there was a study that 73% of marijuana business owners were white men. Let's say that bipartisan support improves and marijuana is legalized here in the state of Wisconsin. How do we as a state ensure the economic benefits of marijuana legalization are racially equitable? Well, one of the things that some places are doing, and I believe it's included in Melissa Sargent's bill, is prioritizing licenses for people who have already been convicted of of cannabis crimes, which is disproportionately people of color. And also um, spreading out licenses like like prioritizing people in communities that have been heavily hit as well, um, and yeah, that that's something that we're we're definitely wanting to to address and keep an eye on because yeah, it's just not fair that you know people are still in jail f- for it while you know the white people who've never been hassled for it are making all the money from it. Um, we kind of touched on, you know, medical marijuana in general, but from my understanding, mar- medical marijuana seems to be a gateway to like full-blown legalization in many states. Um, do you see medical marijuana as having to happen first? And how does recreational cannabis use come after? I don't, I don't think that medical necessarily has to happen first. Um, and I, I think as far as it being like a slippery slope, I think that what it is is just that you know there, there's been this whole demonization of cannabis as being this this horrific drug that destroys people's lives and ruins society. And once medical cannabis comes, people actually start to to know cannabis users. Cannabis users are able to be you know more out there in public. They no longer have to be in the closet. And people realize that that they've been fed these lies about cannabis, and people understand the true nature of cannabis. And I think that's that's why it generally comes first. I mean, it's also just an easier sell to give it to sick people than to give it to everyone first. Sure. But I don't think that it necessarily has to come to come first. Mm-hmm. In our conversation today with um, the cannabis user and also who is someone who sells marijuana, he talked he talked about, you know, selling to parents and doctors and people who are suffering from cancer. Um, so I definitely agree with that. It, it helps that stigma about what a marijuana or cannabis user looks like. Um, my other question is on your web on your website. You ask the viewer if they want more money for education in Wisconsin, and you talk about how Colorado state legalization plan allocates forty million in cannabis tax money to their states, building excellent schools today program. How do we guarantee that money from um, legalizing marijuana in Wisconsin will go to similar programming. It's all in how they write the bill. Um, I know Melissa Sargent's bill has uh, money earmarked for for schools and different uh, programs like that. I, I don't remember the the figures off the top of my head, but I know that pretty much everywhere that does do cannabis legalization does allocate a certain portion to schools and a, por- a certain portion to uh, drug drug prevention. 
and uh, different things like that. Those are generally like the top two. And so it's all in how the law is written. They'll earmark the funds. We're from Wisconsin and we live in Wisconsin. I'm sure you um, have heard about like dairy farmers having to dump out their milk due to COVID-19 and just generally knowing that um, Wisconsin like leads the nation in, in farm bankruptcy. But that wasn't always the case, right? Wisconsin used to be one of the country's leaders in industrial hemp production before the industry died at the end of the world at end of World War II. And then production was later outlawed. Um, so there's a lot of ideas that legalizing marijuana could restore the agricultural economy in Wisconsin, which would be great. Um, but do you see this as a real a solution? And I, I ask because this would demand a shift in production, different knowledgeable workers, differentiating, like differentiating demands of you know hemp versus current products like soy, dairy, corn. How do you see that transition happening? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it would be a partial solution. I mean, I'm going to be honest, and it's, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be a total solution to farmers' woes. Um, but, you know, there, there's definitely hundreds of millions of dollars there to be had. And a lot of people could certainly take advantage of that. Uh, in the fall, I was working on, I was helping at a, a hemp farm. It was a dairy farm that transitioned to hemp. And they were hoping, you know, a lot of a lot of dairy farms had transitioned to hemp, trying to cash in on the new market. Well, the problem was so many places had done it that the price kind of collapsed and, you know, the supply way overpaced demand. And so they're not seeing, you know, nearly as much money as, as they were thinking. And so, you know, there's definitely money to be had there, but I, I don't think, you know, I mean, how many farmers would a billion dollar industry get around to, you know, there's definitely a lot of potential there it would help a lot of farmers, but it's certainly not something that could help all of them, unfortunately. So I'll just be realistic about that. Um, I have a tangenty question as Ben put it in, a documentary I was watching on Netflix about um, cannabis today. They they talk about how this isn't your this isn't your parents' weed anymore, right? Like cannabis is a lot stronger. Um, there's more um, female plants, which just like makes it stronger. I don't understand that entirely. Um, but can you talk about how like how we'll, we could keep cannabis local and under like know where there are the sources in talking to the cannabis user today he talked a lot about how you know he has a trustworthy network but at the end of the day he doesn't always know what is what's in the product that he's getting um does that concern you at all uh that concerns me with the current you know prohibitionist system because right now i mean everyone everyone who's growing it at least if they're growing it in state and everyone who's distributed in state is by definition a criminal and so you know there, there's no quality control there's no regulation on any of it and that's a problem in the current the current way things are done but in states that have legal cannabis markets you know they have strict regulations they have inspections on their product they have health codes they have to follow and most states, I think maybe even every state has, you know, a seed to sale tracking system where, you know, every single uh, bud that they sell, they know where it was grown and they know exactly what strain it is. It all has testing. So, you know, exactly what the percentages of the different cannabinoids are. Uh, the states all require testing to make sure there's no molds and pesticides and heavy metals and other contaminants in the product. So the regulated market is, is much safer. And as far as it not being like your parents' weed, I mean, it is true that THC levels have definitely gone up. And that's in a lot of ways due to uh, selective breeding where they've just constantly bred for higher and higher THC. Part of that is because that's what that's what people want. You don't need to smoke as much of it if it's a higher percentage. And part of it also is just due to the economics of the black market. You know, the when when it comes to black market pricing, like the the biggest the biggest problem is transport. And you know, if you can only you know you can fill your trunk with say fifty pounds of weed, like you're going to get more money for it if it's got a higher potency than if it's got a lower potency. And so. It's just it's more economical to, to pack as much punch into it as you can. And so that itself is also, you know, a, a product of prohibition. Our last guest is Melissa Sargent, the state representative from the Madison area, here to talk about her work on cannabis legislation. Um, I appreciate being invited to um, join you today and have this conversation. My name is Melissa Sargent, and I'm a state representative um, here in the state of Wisconsin, I represent the 48th Assembly District, which is made up of the north and east sides of the city of Madison. And um, it's a real honor and privilege to be working in government, certainly right now, 
um, there are, are a lot of hurdles uh, and a number of um, other things that we're, we're working on uh, aside from traditional policy with uh, the COVID crisis that our um, world is facing. Um, but I have served in the state legislature for about seven years. I'm in my fourth term and I am the lead sponsor of a bill um, in the state of Wisconsin that would fully legalize cannabis use for adult recreational purposes, as well as have a medicinal component. Yeah, and that's what we're here to discuss today. Um, and as you've alluded to, you've been advocating for marijuana uh, legalization in the state of Wisconsin for a bit now. I think I have in my research. I saw that you proposed a bill uh, as far back as 2014 related to marijuana legalization. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And when I was asking around to see who we should talk to at the state level for this particular episode, some of your own colleagues urged that I speak with you. So I guess I'm curious, and my first question to you is, where did your interest or passion for this particular policy, policy area come from? Well, when I was first running for office uh, in the legislature, uh, I never imagined that I would introduce a bill um, in regards to cannabis legalization. Uh, but after I was elected, and frankly, on the campaign trail before I was elected, I had an awful lot of people that were reaching out to me and sharing stories with me about how egregious and damaging the prohibition of cannabis in the state of Wisconsin was. And... Uh, from those conversations, from earnestly listening to what all of these different people were sharing with me and doing a, quite a bit of research on my end, it became very apparent that the most dangerous thing about cannabis in Wisconsin is that it is illegal. And in fact, the um, prohibition of cannabis in our state creates a gateway into um, the criminal justice system for many of our friends and neighbors in Wisconsin. Um, and it is... Um, that is not the way to live. Uh, that is not how it is that we move Wisconsin forward. And it's not how we make sure that the people of Wisconsin's needs are being taken care of. So I worked diligently uh, with a number of people in the community and have spent countless hours, thousands and thousands of hours, I am sure at this point, um, talking to different people, whether they're addiction counselors, whether they are um, manufacturers and producers and growers in other states, whether they're law enforcement officers, um, nurses and doctors, um, parents of kids with debilitating diseases, um, people that have navigated the criminal justice system, um, pharmacists, the list goes on and on and on. And um, I believe that we have a very uh, comprehensive, positive piece of legislation that will help provide opportunity prosperity, and additional security for Wisconsinites that we currently do not have with the prohibition that exists in our state. And so when you on your website, for instance, and I think you just referenced this as well, when you say that the most dangerous thing about uh, cannabis in the state of Wisconsin is that it's illegal, you're really referencing the, um, the fact that marijuana could be a useful medical tool uh, and in addition to that, there's some criminal justice components there that make it uh, make it the fact that it's illegal uh, be dangerous for residents in Wisconsin. Is is that sort of what you're saying? I think it's even more three dimensional than that. I think that um, it it absolutely is an industry that exists in the state of Wisconsin right now. Um, in fact, it's a multi million dollar industry that exists in our state that is currently within the black market. It's underground. And it is a thriving industry. And because it is in the black market, it, there are actually a number of people in our communities that are struggling and are being harmed by the prohibition. Um, so we have the opportunity to, as you mentioned, address the egregious racial disparities, you know, part of the racial disparities that we currently see in the state of Wisconsin. Additionally, um, we would be able to open up new industry into the state of Wisconsin and provide opportunities for people um, in our state to enter this, um, this industry uh, without giving billions of dollars of tax incentives, for example, um, that we gave to Foxconn. And we would be providing more jobs, in fact, more family-sustaining jobs 
um, and being able to invest in our, our local farmers at a time when we are losing at least two farms a day in the state of Wisconsin. And I am sure that number is going up as I continue to read about dairy farmers who are dumping milk and um, agricultural farmers who are, you know, trying to decide if, if they're going to plant crops um, and in other states um, plowing their plots underground. Um, and we also can see that from the states that have legalized cannabis, they have made a positive impact, not only on the criminal justice system, there have been less kids that have been using. Um, they have been able to decrease um, opioid overdoses and deaths. Um, they have been able to have additional revenue come into their state, whether it's tax dollars or um, the residual benefits of the industry that can then be um, brought through for, for um, whether it's the tax dollars for the state to invest into additional services um, or through industry um, where it's putting money actually into the pockets of the ordinary fabulous people of our communities. And as you mentioned, um, providing access to um, a plant that does provide people um, with medicinal benefits at the same time. And, you know, th those are only a few examples of the benefits of legalizing cannabis in Wisconsin. Yeah. And so I'm glad you mentioned a lot of the, the positive things that could go along with legalization of cannabis in Wisconsin. And I've, uh, in my research, I've also seen some, uh, some polls, public polls, around the support for marijuana legalization, either for medicinal use or just, um, you know, w without clarifying between medicinal and recreational use, there's still the majority of Wisconsinites who support marijuana legalization. So can you talk a little bit about some of the obstacles and why something like this uh, hasn't happened yet? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, we do know um, through the ballot box uh, about uh, during our last November election, so going on a year and a half ago, um, well over half of the state of Wisconsin, red communities and blue communities, urban and rural, northern and southern, um, had the opportunity to vote on whether or not the prohibition of cannabis was working for them and for the state of Wisconsin. And we saw overwhelmingly the results of that, whether it was the city of Waukesha or the city of Madison, um, that people stood up very loudly and said, prohibition is not working. And in fact, we need to change our laws um, in order to bring Wisconsin forward. And we know through the fact that Wisconsin is now an island of prohibition and we're able to not only look at states like Colorado and California, but we're able to look at Illinois and, and Minnesota and Michigan and how it is that they have addressed um, cannabis law that in fact the bottom does not fall out. Uh, and we have residents from across the state of Wisconsin through polling, um, as well as through the ballot box that are far ahead of the politicians in the state capitol building. Um, the people of the state of Wisconsin want us to change these laws. They are asking us to change these laws. And in fact, inscribed on the ceiling of the governor's office are some very important words for I think all legislatures, legislators to take to heart and to remember. It's the will of the people is the law of the land. This isn't what you yourself think is best, but in fact, what the will of the people is. And the will of the people of the state of Wisconsin are asking us to remove the prohibition of cannabis in our state. We know this because a lot of our residents are in fact driving the first day that Illinois legalized um, recreational cannabis sales, driving across the border to be in Illinois um, to wait in line um, to be able to purchase cannabis le legally. Um, at dispensaries in states that are surrounding us. And some of them are actually getting on airplanes and have for many years um, and spending time and money in um, states like Colorado and Washington and, and California. So um, it's really unfortunate that the politicians, that my colleagues in the Capitol building, um, in the majority party, which is the Republican caucus, the Republican party in both the Senate and the Assembly, is so vehemently opposed to cannabis legalization. Frankly, I believe that they suffer from reefer madness. You don't need to look farther than the data, the scientific data um, from other countries, other states, um, and um, you know, even in labs close by uh, to know that, in fact, by legalizing cannabis, we will make Wisconsin be a stronger and safer place. 
Yeah, and so you mentioned the Republicans in the legislature who haven't supported the legalization of marijuana for recreational use, but we are uh, at Bridge the City speaking with Representative Mary Falskowski, uh, who is a Republican in the legislature. Unfortunately, because of some meetings around COVID-19, which are obviously very important, Representative Falskowski was not able to meet with us before the airing of this episode, who um, has supported has said she supports marijuana uh, use for medicinal purposes. Um, and the the polls that we sort of referenced earlier show that when you clarify between medicinal use and recreational use, you have a larger percentage of respondents who support legalization for medicinal use over recreational use. So why not... Uh, why not support a bill or propose a bill or get behind more incremental progress uh, around this issue and support marijuana for medicinal use and uh, sort of uh, keep working on, but maybe push down the road a little bit, the the use of marijuana for recreational use? Well, Ben, um, we have for many, many years and many legislative sessions actually had legislation introduced um, that would provide a path towards legalization for medicinal use. And the Republican legislative leadership has um, stood in the way and actually prevented um, those bills from having public hearings, um, being prevented those bills from being able to move forward. In fact, um, I believe that if we looked at the legislation that has been um, introduced over a number of different sessions, we would see legislation to decriminalize. Um, We would see legislation to remove the drug testing for um, cannabis um, we would see the bill that I've introduced for full legalization. Um, and in fact, this is something that I feel very passionately about. The devil is in the details. Um, and just because someone has introduced a piece of legislation that says, oh, um, I support medicinal, I really do believe strongly that you need to look at what it is that the language in the bill would allow. And yes, the bill that I have introduced is a bill that would support full legalization in the state of Wisconsin. But that doesn't mean that the Republican leadership has not had the opportunity um, to schedule other bills for public hearings. And in fact, allow my bill to have a public hearing, a bill that has been written by and for the people of the state of Wisconsin, not a bill that has been written and by pharmaceutical companies or written and by and for um, any other special interest group. It is from thousands of hours of conversations of with people from across the state of Wisconsin. Um, so yes, I support incremental work, but I also know that we have had the opportunity to have that incremental work happen, and Republican um, Party leadership has prevented that from being able to happen. Yeah, and I'm happy that you brought up some of the the details in. Or, or the importance of the details of particular legislation. Your current bill that you have proposed is number like four or five, I think you've proposed. It's the fourth version. Every two years that the legislature is sworn back into a new session, every bill that's been introduced in previous sessions goes away and you need to start all over. Again. Yeah. And uh, it seems though that in this one, there are some some different uh, details relative to the ones from the past. One thing in particular I noticed um, that kind of seemed like you all were extending potentially a partisan olive branch to Republicans was a provision around the Second Amendment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And am I right to think that this is politically strategic to include uh, that language? Well, frankly, um, even Democrats care about the Second Amendment. Um, and I support um, the Second Amendment. And I also know that many people that I have talked to over the years um, want to make sure that I that the Second Amendment is protected and supported. Um, I am hopeful that there are members of the Republican Party that look at that and see the earnestness that has and thoughtfulness that has been put into this legislation. Um, and it is important that people who are using cannabis are not, in my opinion, um, prevented from being legal firearm owners. Um, there, this bill has changed over different sessions based on what it is that we've learned in other states, in other countries, um, through science um, and uh, about brain development, about addiction. Uh, so uh, it is certainly a living document. And ultimately, all legislation is a living document. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't need to have legislatures that were coming into, um, you know, coming together, convening together and introducing bills on a, on a regular basis. 
And so I have one one last question here before we get to uh, what Bridges City ends every interview with, which is just an opportunity for the guests to share any action steps listeners can take. Um, but I was looking at some of the data from other states that have legalized cannabis, and they've shown that some of the economic benefits of its legalization have gone disproportionately to white folks and particularly white men. In a 2017 study, 73% of marijuana business owners were white men. Of marijuana business owners were white men. Let's say that bipartisan support improves and marijuana is legalized here. What does your proposal do or what should our state do to ensure the economic benefits of marijuana legalization are racially equitable? It's a really important question considering that Wisconsin is the worst state when it comes to racial disparities. Um, and it is not something that we should be proud of. It is not something that we should be ignoring. And I think oftentimes is on the sidelines with too much policy. Um, I have taken into consideration a number of things in this current piece of legislation. Um, one of them is allowing for nonviolent marijuana offenders to be able to um, have their records expunged. Um, there would be a process for them to be able to go through. Um, additionally, anyone that is currently sitting, if this bill were to pass in a jail or prison with a nonviolent marijuana related offense, there would be a path forward for them to be released after this bill um, is um, after this bill would pass. Um, third, we provide the opportunity for people who do have nonviolent marijuana cannabis related offenses on their record to be involved in the industry. There are states out there that actually prohibit these people from being able to be part of the industry in legal states. And I think that's egregious. And, and um, lastly, we are um, planning on in the next version of the bill, you know, if I'm reelected after um, this election cycle, um, to provide opportunities and pathways um, for uh, grant and um, financial supports for um, normally, you know, people that are normally not having access to them. So women and people of color um, would have access to startup capital to become involved in the industry. So as you've heard alluded to throughout the episode, the current legislative leadership has not allowed a public hearing on the issue of cannabis here in Wisconsin. As such, we asked both Dan and Eric what they would say to electeds if there was a hearing and they were present. If I was at the medical cannabis hearing, I would say that this is something that, that a lot of sick people need right now very urgently and that cannabis is safer than opiates. And to look at the data that shows that, in fact, states that legalize medicinal cannabis have reduced rates of, of opiate addiction and opiate overdoses because people are using safer medicines. I mean, it's a medicine that's been around for thousands of years and people have used it safely. There's no overdose potential. And it's, you know, it's about time that we join the dozens of other states that already have it. Um, I would just reference the referendum, right, that I can't remember the results of that, but I'm pretty sure it concluded that a lot of the counties in the state um, are overwhelmingly in favor of doing just that. Um, so, yeah. They're, they're there to represent us, so they should just listen to not me, but everyone. In true Bridge the City form, we will end things with our guests' action steps. Remember that sound bites aren't solutions, and real activism starts with you all getting involved in the community directly. Looking for where to start, perhaps? Well, listen to this. I would, I would heed it, uh, whatever advice the normal representative has. Yeah, I have faith in their uh, expertise. Well, it's a little hard right now, unfortunately, to get out in the community, but we are encouraging people on 420 to call and write to their legislators and, and ask for cannabis prohibition and, you know, with a little explanation of, of why they support cannabis prohibition. Um, and you can just, you know, Google Wisconsin State Legislature and put in your address, find out who your legislators are and contact them. And that's, you know, that's, that's the thing that we're doing right now. Otherwise, we do a lot of petitioning and community events and stuff when we're able to, but that's all on pause right now. So we're doing virtual stuff and we're having uh, Zoom meetings. If anyone wants to, to get involved with the chapter, uh, look us up on Facebook, Southeastern Wisconsin Normal, N-O-R-M-L, and go to our events tab. And, you know, we just had our last one on Tuesday. We always have the second Tuesday of the month. And so we're doing those virtually now. So, you know, that's another way to get involved with the chapter. I always encourage people to reach out to me and share with me their thoughts and concerns. Um, you know, take a look at the bill. Um, it's on my legislative website. 
um, as well as FAQs and other information for people. Um, and let me know what it is that you're thinking as a call for action. Additionally, um, I'm hearing from Republican leadership that this is not a priority to them and they are not hearing from people across Wisconsin that it is a priority for them as well. Um, so we do need folks to reach out to the Republican leadership. They may not be your representative or your senator, but they have taken the position of being the leader of the, of the caucus of, of that, um, that branch of government. And they have an awful lot of say and sway in what it is that gets scheduled for public hearings. Um, and that is the first step in order to, to allow legislation to move forward. So reach out to um, Speaker Boss and reach out to Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald and let them know that this is a priority for you, um, that you do want them to take this forward. And lastly, this is an election year. So um, when you do go to the polls, and I certainly hope, um, despite the fact that it does seem like we're doing a lot of voter disenfranchising in the state of Wisconsin, everyone needs to vote. And when they vote, they need to vote educated. They need to know who it is that they're voting for, what it is that they stand for, and they need to look at the details, not a bullet point, not a talking point, but the devil is in the, in the details, folks. Um, if we wanna have comprehensive, um, thoughtful, pragmatic, life-saving legislation passed, then you need to know what it is that you're that you're um, that you're supporting, and remember that as you go and vote in November as well. Thank you so much for listening to Bridget City. Thank you to Dan K, Eric Marsh with Normal, and State Representative Melissa Sargent. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting on patreon.com slash bridges city follow us on social media we hope that you all are staying safe and healthy in the midst of everything and as always please let us know how you have helped bridge the city bridge the city whoa, whoa. bridge the city yeah bridge the city yeah gotta bridge the city the city bridge the city yeah.